Hi, it's Dune here, your host and hype girl. And before we dive into today's episode, I want you to take a hot second to reflect. What's that passion, unique experience, or knowledge you have itching to be shared with the world? For me, it's always been about guiding you and cheerleading incredible women to start your businesses. So what's your thing? You see, everyone's got something they excel at, something they just can't stop talking about. And it turns out that one of the best ways to monetize those passions is through sharing that thing with the world as a digital course product. My life's work has been to chat with more than 600, 7, 8, and 9-figure e-commerce founders. And it's through those conversations that have led me to creating a foolproof playbook and my go-to guide for early-stage founders in the form of my first-ever digital program, e-commerce fundamentals. But it wouldn't have been possible without Thinkific. The beauty of this platform lies in its simplicity. Cute templates and a super easy to use editor. No coding headaches, no tech-induced stress, just pure focus on what matters most, the content. So if you've ever been curious about building a course to teach your passion, this is the way to do it. The genuine support from the Thinkific team turns it from this lonely, confusing headache into the most fulfilling and easy project. Go to the link in my show notes to get a free trial on me. This is Lily Dempster for Female Startup Club. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today we're learning from Lily Dempster, the founder of One Small Step app. One Small Step is a social enterprise that uses technology and behavioral science to make it easy and rewarding for people to successfully adopt greener habits and reduce their carbon emissions. Their vision is to harness the best aspects of humanity to help avert the climate crisis and secure an environmentally healthy future. It's designed to help millions of people reduce their carbon emissions and offers a clear path to personal net zero emissions and climate positivity through the delivery of free science-based data-informed courses and habits. One Small Step gives clarity on the impact of the food you eat, the purchases you make, how you travel, the energy you use, and the waste you produce. It then provides solutions via easy step-by-step courses to reduce emissions with the option to switch to trusted sustainable products and services. This was such an interesting episode for me. I'm less in the loop when it comes to the blueprint of building an app and acquiring users. So I learned a lot and I'm sure you're going to as well. And before we get into it, while I've got you here, remember to sign up to receive our weekly Hype Girl Hotline texts for a dose of motivation and joy. Head over to our Norby link to sign up for free at femalestartupclub.norby.live. Let's get into this episode. This is Lily for Female Startup Club. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Selling a little 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Lily, hi, welcome to the Female Startup Club podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy for us to be here too. It's been a long time in the works. I'm excited to learn more about your business, what you're up to, what's going on in your world. Where do you like to kind of kick off your story with one small step? Where do I like to kick it off? Wow. Um, I know it's a long story. It's sort of my life's work. So (laughs) for those that aren't familiar with it, um, yeah, I run One Small Step. It's a climate technology startup and started it out of Australia and uh, it's a mobile application. So it helps you reduce your carbon emissions through lifestyle changes and it uses behavioral science to make it easy for you to adopt kind of green behaviors that really work for you and your lifestyle. And we've been running it, I've been running it since 2018. I'm a sole founder and we launched it into the United States also at the start of this year. My gosh, so cool. So interesting. You said that it's been your life's work. Do you want to kind of rewind, take us back to what you were doing before you started the business and what got you thinking about this idea in particular and that light bulb moment that happened to you? Yeah, sure. So I wanted to work in social impact or social justice ever since I was quite sort of young. My family, uh, I think the kinds of conversations we had around the dinner table, my mom worked in mental health care and my dad was a journalist but was very big on press freedom and public broadcasting. So they were both sort of 
activists in their own right. And I, so I, was, I guess I was raised in a family where the value set was, you know, you, you want to do good work, but also how are you going to contribute to society? And that was just something that I was raised in. And so that was a big frame of reference for me, thinking about what I wanted to do through university. I studied law, which I decided I think now is a mistake for me at least. I did a whole five-year arts law degree. And law is fantastic because it teaches you how to think and process lots of information, bless you, quickly. But the the downside, you know, at least at that point when I was studying is that, you know, you had to work in corporate law to get really good. There wasn't a lot happening in Australia in terms of really good public interest litigation compared to some of the, the firms overseas. So I early on in, in university realised that I wanted to work in the environmental movement because I saw climate change is a really significant social justice issue because it has such inequitable impacts both generationally and then for people that are the least responsible for having caused the damage are the ones that are most affected by it. And it also is just like a maximizer for maximizer for human suffering and all kinds of human security threats that we want to avoid. So I felt like working on climate change was a really good use of my my time and energy, highly intellectually challenging, very complex, lots and lots of different areas you could contribute to. And so started down that path, but really struggled with like how to apply my my legal background effectively. And so ended up moving into campaigning, so political campaigning, looking at top-down reforms. At the federal level, I worked for an advocacy organization called GetUp uh, when I was in university fairly early on as a, a sort of junior campaigner and then had worked in Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is a part of the public service to sort of learn how the sausage gets made <laughs> in government, and that was very formative over two years. Uh, and then went back into campaigning on on climate for Get Up. Was working on renewable energy specifically and coal seam gas. And running those campaigns, I really got a sense of how significant an impact we can have when we mobilise people in sort of their thousands to make changes to their consumer choices and also changes to their behaviour. We sort of ran the numbers on some of the campaigns that I was responsible for, one where we were getting people to switch to a an electricity provider that was only generating renewable energy through their generation side of the business and was offsetting everybody's emissions through their electricity, getting people to switch to green power, another scheme. And the impact was really significant with sort of 15,000 people in one campaign, 5,000 in another took them a couple of minutes online to switch. So these were sort of fairly easy actions and yet the impact was really significant, not only in terms of the the emission reductions but also the fact that it was growing the market share of environmentally friendly businesses, growing their market power. So you're kind of pushing against the fossil fuel energy incumbents with a really actually quite a positive campaign. Um, so that was sort of the, my light bulb moment. Um, going, okay, there's an underutilized sort of area of effort we could be we could be looking at in the environmental movement, and that's really looking at people power and consumer movements. And you know, there's been a really big focus on top-down political reform and how essential that is. Doesn't take away the fact that it's still essential, um, but that I think people fundamentally misunderstand how we change dynamic systems like our society, how we decarbonize society, and we really do need grassroots change at all levels of society in order to be successful. And the IPCC report, the latest one that's come out, has sort of shown that now, looking at 
I'm going way too technical, but what's called demand side climate change mitigation. They're like 40 to 70 percent of of the global carbon emission reductions we need to make could potentially come from demand side. So that's changes in behavior effectively. And one small step is dedicated to helping people make those changes um, in their behavior. And I also studied a bit of economics and choice theory and my political science degree and had been obsessed with behavioral economics and behavioral science. So was really nerding out on the potential applications of that emerging research in the product I've ultimately built. How do we effectively support people to make better decisions, working with the way that people make decisions and take action, rather than just info dumping or sort of guilt tripping. We really wanted it to be positive and and something that actually supported people in growing their well-being as as well as the having the environmental impact. Wow. Sounds absolutely amazing. I love everything that you're doing. I'm so curious about this time in your life where you're having these thoughts. You know, you you studied law, you're obviously a non-technical founder from what I can tell. And you've decided to embark on becoming a tech entrepreneur and developing an app. Do you quit your job and go all in? Are you starting with a small MVP? And I should preface to everyone, (laughs) I am less familiar with talking about tech and apps and all this kind of thing. So you're really going to have to step me through the blueprint of your journey (laughs) like I'm a grandma. (laughs) No, it's good because I was basically a grandma starting out, as you said, non-technical founder. So going, okay, I'm going to build, you know, a mobile application with this sort of feature set where we can do... A-B testing or multivariate testing of comms and design and user interface, like that was a really tough ask when it was just me at the start. Um, I would say the first few years of trying to do this were the toughest. I didn't really know who to listen to because I, you know, I didn't have a coding background. So one option is, okay, I learned to code myself. A second is that I bring in a technical co-founder who can, who can execute the coding and development side for the business and for me. The third was sort of raising money and hiring outsourced developers. I went with an option where I I went through an accelerator program that was designed for tech-enabled businesses sort of supporting female founders. And the intention was they'll pair you with a team of developers and they'll help you build out your MVP and you didn't have to front up the initial capital to do that. They took an equity stake and they would build the MVP. So on the face of it, it's called She Starts Through Blue Chili. On the face of it, that seemed like a good option, but I think I didn't have any experience in product management and I think I was also not great at sort of being really clear about what I knew. Like I knew my my eco-conscious consumer market really well from years of grassroots campaigning and I knew a ton about what what needed to be in the product from a behaviour change standpoint and I wasn't, I didn't push hard enough on that because I was sort of like, well, I don't know anything about running a business. I don't know anything about building a minimum viable product. So let's let's do it in the way that I'm I'm being told to do it or being suggested. And, and so I think there was probably, yeah, a good 18 months where we made very little headway despite working really hard, you know, doing some government grants, sort of bootstrapped it. I did a crowdfunding campaign where I raised $30,000 um, from the public, launched a local version of, of the app, kind of a, an early version in Canberra using some white labeling. So it was really tough because I just didn't have that technical co-founder who really understood what I was trying to achieve. And, and that alignment is so important when you're building something that's never been built before. 
And for a long time, I had people often say to me, like, what you're trying to do isn't possible. No one's going to change their behavior through a mobile app. It's too hard. No one gives a crap about the environment. You know, your market's going to be really tiny. You know, you get all kinds of of, of lots of opinions. The naysayers. <laughs> which is totally fine. I mean, you know, if it was obvious to everybody that it was a good idea, it would already probably exist. But what I what changed it for me was getting in some really fantastic technical advisors, really just through loose tie contacts. I had Simon Sheik, who was was the former director of Get Up Where I'd Worked and now the, the founder of the Ethical Superannuation Fund, Future Super. He introduced me to Brian Rollins, who was very senior in Atlassian, the senior product guy there. Atlassian's a massive software company in Australia. And we just really hit it off. Like I remember I was like, sorry to swear, but kind of shitting myself when I first met him, talked to him on the phone because I thought, oh, this guy's not going to be interested in what I'm doing. You know, I barely have a product. And it's, it's really just me at this point. But he was just so lovely. You know, some of the best people I think for me in business that I've met are highly intelligent but just have no ego and no pretension and they're sort of the best people to work with. And so Brian was really, really fantastic as a support. Same with Jason Serafino, another guy that came in as an advisor. He's a really experienced chief technology officer of a, of a fintech in Australia. And I started working with those guys about mid-2019 and they really helped me to understand how to structure you know, a, a, a lean product development business or lean product development team helped me hire my first in-house developer and really understand what was needed, both in terms of tech stack choices and just how to manage developers as a non-technical person. And so I just got really good mentoring, basically. It was invaluable, raised some some pre-seed funding with their support. And, and then we were sort of away. And then software was sort of neutralized as an issue because whereas prior to that, it had been really tough just to even get a product that worked in the way that even at the most basic level to, to test the assumptions that I had, it was really tough. Um, so that, that was a huge turning point, getting those guys in my corner and they, you know, they're still both of them involved with the business to this day. And so thanks Brian and Jason and Simon for the initial intro. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. The technical part of getting that MVP ready and getting the the first kind of versions, it just seems like such a challenge and then you've got to, I guess, onboard users and, and see what they're doing when they're using the app and, and starting to kind of take that next phase of launch and kind of marketing. How did you go about launching into the market and getting your first kind of core users? That part was easier because, again, the grassroots campaigning, there's a lot of similarity between digital marketing and, and sort of digital campaigning. So, you know, we, I ran some live events did sort of launches, went to little festivals, collected, built an email list. And then just at that point, Facebook advertising was really good. <laughs> it was cheap, unlike my experience with it now. And so <laughs> Classic. We, a couple, yeah, a couple of hundred dollars behind some some ads. Just I think for the crowdfunding campaign as well, we bought we built a list that way. And you know, the Facebook ads were really cheap. I think we put 200 bucks behind them and we acquired our first thousand kind of signups that way. So we had a really what? good, yeah, we had a really good initial <laughs> demand. Oh my God. And, and so that worked really well. And I, you know, because I think what we were doing was, was novel at the time and also really strong environmental focus um, is very mission driven. It was pretty easy for us to get some press as well. So we had a few, you know, going through the accelerator and then with what we were trying to build, we had a, I, I sort of, because I was based in Canberra at the time, 
was able to use local media a bit to kind of get the brand awareness up potentially too early. You know, we didn't necessarily need that exposure at that point when we barely had a product, <laughs> but that that helped too. So I think that initial phase of acquiring that first thousand signups was, was easy. And then as we started to try to scale up our user acquisition, which, you know, for the mechanics of a, a model like my business, you really need to have accelerating user acquisition on a monthly basis if you're going to grow, because you've got a high churn product with a mobile app, even with good retention, you basically need to have an increasing number of new users to be able to scale the user base. And that's been a big challenge for us, actually. You know, we, we've found that we can, we've got a pretty good, what's called a paid user acquisition engine. We've done that through TikTok um, and then Google ads. And, you know, we're continuously testing different channels, but, and we were able to find a really good partner to work with that helped us on a pay for performance basis, which was great because you're not you're not paying for the service, you're paying for the outcome. And they were an international firm. It's critical. Yeah. And so that that's worked pretty well. But I think where we haven't done as well actually is like in our content marketing, we haven't had a, a full marketing person on staff the whole time. So you know, we've got a we've got a really solid mailing list and we're sort of sending stuff out to people and we have our followings on on social media. But we've, we're sort of doing a lot through the app proper now in terms of community building. We have a bunch of community and group features and we're really focusing on supporting people to connect into their local sustainability initiatives, working in groups on the activities that are suggested in the app. All of it's highly personalised, by the way, like the types of action plans that you get for yourself in the app to reduce emissions. But, yeah, it's sort of a community-first strategy at the moment is how we're looking at growing, really focusing on user referrals. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For you, and like in this kind of model in general, how do you monetize or is it not for profit? Um, we're a profit for purpose. So in Australia, that means we're a proprietary limited company, which is standard. We have a constitution with environmental objectives, um, both the sort of the objects of the business and then as a director, director's duties include having to advance those objects and take them into consideration. So that's how we navigated that from a governance standpoint. We had Alan's law firm do our social enterprise constitution. And so, yeah, for profit, it meant that we were able to access capital from investment, sort of specifically a lot of impact investors, tech-based angel investors. That was easier initially than having to raise from philanthropic donors. So that I think it was really a hard call on whether to go non-profit or for-profit. And I think there's arguments for both, especially when you're cause-driven. But in terms of monetization, you know, that's something where we're really working quite hard on at the moment. Um, you know, we, we have a solid user base. We've, I think the biggest achievement is that we've proven the product's effective. It actually does what it says it'll do. Probably could go a bit, bit further in terms of being effective, but it, you know, we've got users reducing their, their carbon emissions through the tool, which I think is a really awesome achievement given how difficult changing behavior can be. And so from a monetization standpoint, we had a subscription based offer for a while. We took that off because we felt like we were sort of making it harder for people to access the best parts of the tool. And then we've had referral partnerships. So we do sort of like Good On You, if you're familiar with them, um, Ethical Consumers Australia. They're great, by the way. They're, um, they rank fashion brands on their environmental and labour credentials. And so you can sort of scan a barcode at a, shop, at a shopping mall and see if, you know, there's a, a very comprehensive amount of brand ratings there. Plus you can search on their site for sort of the best brands. But they ran a referral arrangement that I think hit a really good balance between allowing them to bring in some revenue with a free product while also not compromising their integrity. And so the way we've tried to do that is we only recommend businesses that really, really supporting people to reduce emissions, not just in a marginal way, but in a big way. And then also we give non-sponsored recommendations and we show the basis of our recommendations. So with third-party accreditation and examples in like superannuation, we have a green finance program in the app. We ask people to switch their super fund if they're up for it so they're not investing in fossil fuel projects. And there are several funds in Australia that have these screening policies where they won't invest in fossil fuels. And there's sort of third-party accreditation for that or that market forces has done a really, really good assessment of the funds that that have those kind of green portfolios. And so we recommend Verve Superannuation who are supporting us with a with a referral fee. 
they also support a lot of um, projects around gender equality. We think they're a really great fund, but there's a bunch of others as well that are good, and so we recommend those as well. And that's kind of how we've we've looked at monetizing. We've also just launched One Small Step for Businesses, so it's sort of like the a version of the app, but allows for a lot of collaboration between colleagues and then data dashboards, so you can kind of see the um, impact that you're all having, carbon emissions from staff setting up live challenges. So we just launched that in the last month. Wow, that's really cool. And so do you go out and pitch to like the HR department of a company and try and get them onboarded? And do they do they pay you for that? Or Yeah, that's the point of monetizing with it. Definitely. Um, it's on a subscription basis. Yeah. So they you charge them to be on there. Got yeah. it. Charge, charge companies to use the product. At the moment, it's $2 per user per month annual or $5 per user per month monthly. Yeah. So that's a very low price point. Um, but, you know, we're just, we're just starting with the offer. So, yeah. What's your, like, when you're looking at your marketing and kind of acquisition now, what is it that shifts the needle for kind of just getting the, the everyday consumer and getting businesses on board? Yeah, um, you mean in terms of how do we get traction in acquiring new users, acquiring customers? Look, I don't think that we've we've sort of nailed that yet. It's something we're continuously working on. Definitely, I've found for my business that we have a surprisingly good impact in user acquisition from press coverage. I'd always thought of thought of press coverage as it's like building brand value and brand awareness, but it's not going to necessarily have an obvious and direct impact on your acquisition numbers. But that's not been the case for us. Whenever we have um, press coverage, what we tend to find is that we'll see a dip in our cost per user acquisition in the kind of couple of days following. Um, So that's been a, a great one. And then with the enterprise piece, like offering the tool to businesses, we really have just started. So I wouldn't say that I've got a recipe for success there yet. I'm just sort of um, talking to people that I already have relationships with, looking at, you know, getting it. We did a a fair bit of customer discovery of the types of industries that would be interested in using this tool and the types of jobs, titles, who are the decision makers. So it's all standard kind of enterprise SaaS business development stuff, um, really. I'll see how we go. (laughs) You've recently been going through a raise. I'm wondering what your experience has been like and what you've learned going through this process that you can pass on to anyone else who is going through the journey. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that you can learn from doing capital raising. So it's a bit hard to answer that question, to be honest, because it's like, well, a lot. (laughs) It really (laughs) depends on what, you know, if you're listening to this, like what your goals are. I mean, I can just speaking from personal experience of what my goals were and then interacting with the kind of capital raising ecosystem in Australia, I guess some key things are that it's good to know what stage you're at. And so you can, you know, raising money is extremely intensive emotionally and in terms of the workload. Nick Crocker from Blackbird, who also supports the Startmate Accelerator, has some really good resources that are publicly available, I think, via Startmate's website on this. So if you're thinking about fundraising, I think some of his advice and and publications online are, like, excellent. But uh, really it's about, you know, you can expect to work on this full-time for months um, if if you're doing a raise. And 
the kind of key things that you'd want to be thinking about are like who you're targeting. So there's all these different sort of stages of investor sophistication. You have um, angel investors. They're often people who are really passionate about the whatever you're working on, whatever problem you're trying to solve. They're kind of happy to put in a, a bet that's fairly high risk and are supportive of you and that, you know, they're great people to find early. And then you've got sort of family offices, which can be kind of the in-between point between angels and venture investors and then institutional investors, venture investors, you know, they, they typically have a more sophisticated way of assessing, you know, deals and the suitability of your business for investment and typically also have higher expectations, not just in terms of your traction when you're going to them to raise, but also your prospective returns. You know, one key thing to understand about venture investment is those funds are structured so that they need to have each investment at least conceivably being able to return the full amount of the fund. So they're looking at can you over time and fairly quickly get like over a 10x return on the investment they're making. And so it's really helpful to know your own numbers and know, you know, what what you can conceivably think about, like if you have a, an understanding of your revenue model, any points that you can validate, numbers that you can put in front of, of people where you've validated your assumptions, always going to go really well. And I would also just say like people are really happy to give feedback. So, you know, you can sort of soft start and just start to build relationships with people, ask for feedback. A lot of venture funds and some family offices do office hours you know, you can meet with analysts and they'll give you feedback on how you're going. Um, and that can be really helpful when you're just kind of getting a sense of the lay of the land. I remember when I did my seed round, I actually asked one one investor, you know, what? how should I price this round? You know, what do you think I should do? And I, I had some angel investors as well. And I, I just sort of asked for advice and used the power of loose ties. So I didn't know anyone with money when I was starting out, but I'd been involved in the startup community in Melbourne. You know, I was working through a great co-working space called One Roof. And so I just sort of was like, how do I meet investors? And I just started there by asking the question and talking to people that I knew and slowly getting introductions that way. The other thing that I think is really great for when you're raising money is you want to have really regular communication. So for people who are on your list, think of it like customer record management. You know, you've got a list of people who are prospective investors. You have an initial chat uh, you send them through some materials, you know, and then maybe a follow-up investment deck. So you have a couple of conversations. And between those conversations, you want to be sending updates as often as weekly to your investor list saying, this is what we said we were going to do. This is what we achieved. This is what we're still working on. And you turn, you know, that's how you build a relationship because it's actually about, it's so much about relationship building. People want to feel that they can trust you. They want to feel that you do have the traction that you're you're saying you have. And so if you can communicate regularly, even just during that fundraising period for the three or four or six months or whatever, and showing that you're delivering that, that has a really big impact. Yeah. Sorry, that's probably, like I said, there's so much that you could talk about. Like <laughs> so many insights there. So, so great. Thank you so much. I'm curious to know, like for you, it sounds like you're in series A, right? You're you're doing a series A round or I, no, we're still seed. I, I wouldn't say that we're seed. series A. We're not covering our costs. So I think especially with the changes to the to the market lately off the back of changes to the economy. Um, you know, if we we're doing series A, we'd be wanting to have pretty significant a monthly recurring revenue to feel that we could justify that and raise it a decent valuation. And for what you're doing now with this seed round, what does that 
enable you to do? What What's the next phase of one small step? Yeah, I mean, I think what I mentioned about maybe when it, before we started recording, but launching in a couple of other countries. So, you know, going into the UK, New Zealand, Canada, there's still some, I think our focus is really, we need to turn it into a viable and sustainable business financially. Um, that's a that's a core part of what we're doing over the next six months, really because the capital raising environment isn't isn't great at the moment, neither in Australia or the U- United States. So focusing on this enterprise kind of offer, one small step for businesses, and also really investing in the community features that we've built and supporting people in tapping into local communities because we see that as a really strong growth strategy. So there's sort of three three pillars. It's sort of like growing our revenue growing our user acquisition through this community's um, piece and referrals. And then the third is just engagement, like working on making the tool as good as it can be, constantly improving it based on on user feedback and insights. And there's a bunch of stuff that we, you know, it's never done. You constantly want to make changes to it to make it, to make it more effective. How do you raise and like spend three, six months kind of full-time seeking investment and also you know, continually focusing on growing and marketing and building the business. Like it just feels like it's two full-time jobs. Yeah, I it don't is, understand. frankly, it's a, <laughs> it's a huge amount of work. Um, and that's why, you know, I think I probably would do something differently than how I, how I did do it in the business, which is I was really focused on product validation and making the product as effective as possible. And I think that like I'm really proud of the work that we've done there because it, it is really difficult and we're doing something so much more complex and ambitious than I don't know, setting up like a really simple widget to support businesses to book calendar appointments more effectively. Like we're covering how do people change up their mode of transportation, diet, um, energy systems, like the food that they they purchase, waste in their home. It's just such an ambitious and massive undertaking. So I'm proud of the work we achieved, but I think not having a really strong revenue loop from the outset built into the into the initiative has made it harder because you do have to effectively work on the business and then take yourself out of it and trust that the team you have around you can kind of keep things moving along while you focus on investment. So, yeah, the if you can get to a point where you're covering your own costs, I often I really think that that's that's the best possible scenario because then if you are raising money, you're doing it not because you need money to stay alive. You're doing it because, well, we want to scale up and we want to start offering our, you know, our app to these really large ent- enterprise clients. And so we need account managers and we need some additional developers. You know, that that's a fantastic way to pitch to a, a venture investor compared to we validated some stuff, but we don't have any money. Can, can we have some money? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would. I'd say like definitely I would have shifted our focus to be a lot more on revenue initially. And I think probably coming from a nonprofit background and being so cause focused, I sort of didn't have a strong an interest in how we generate revenue initially. And it, I think the best thing you can do is really work very hard on the business model and validate that early because if you have revenue coming in, you know, it completely changes the the whole scenario of what you're doing. You're in a, a much better position in terms of leverage with investors. And you also then have your own resources that you're generating to to reinvest back into the into the initiative. In this same kind of note that we're on at the moment, when you look back and reflect on this journey of building an app and kind of being in tech, 
Is there anything else that you either wish you did differently at the beginning or wish that you knew before you started? Like hindsight bias is really seductive. I mean, there's so many things that I feel like I've done that were like only obviously mistakes like 12 months later. It really reminds me of Game of Thrones. Like, you know how the guy in season one, Sean Bean, he gets killed and he's sort of in Game of Thrones. And it's like the whole thing of Game of Thrones initially was like the characters pay for the consequences of their actions. But it's sort of like really like there's like a slow burn to you actually seeing that occur. And I feel like it's sort of similar with startups. Like you just don't know what you don't know and you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. I feel like I'm very lucky because I've learned so much in doing this. And I think the thing I would have liked to have known before I started is actually to back myself and my instincts more because if you're making other people's mistakes, you're not going to learn as well as if you're making your own. So go with your own instincts. You will fail faster and you'll learn more effectively if you say, well, I really thought this was the situation. I thought this is what was going to happen. And I executed these actions and then the opposite happened or or it did work as I intended. Okay, well, I can start to build up a sense of trust in myself and my decision-making Or no, I need to recalibrate because I had my understanding of this situation was wrong. So you're building in your own feedback loop by testing things in the real world, but based on your best assumptions of what you think is going to occur. And I think that's really important for women founders, not, you know, not to stereotype, but there is a tendency to have like what's called like an external frame of reference. And I certainly have this and it's still something I have to work on is constantly seeking advice, you know, consuming information, trying to learn. And I often just need to pause and kind of go, well, what do I think about this? And and not taking all of the external info and just figure out what I think first and go from that place. That's something I wish I'd known earlier. It would save me a lot of time. Yeah, I feel like I fall into that trap a little bit, a lot. A bit. Yeah, it's really, really, <laughs> it's really common because, um, you know, you don't want to be pig headed and be like, I know everything and I'm just going to do it my way. And you don't want to be that person. But I think for most women, it's a safe bet that they're, undervaluing their own decision-making skills. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. Thanks for sharing that. I love that. Thank you. No worries. Hey, it's June here. Thanks for listening to this amazing episode of the Female Startup Club podcast. If you're a fan of the show and want even more of the good stuff, I'd recommend checking out femalestartupclub.com where you can subscribe to our free newsletter. We send it out weekly covering female founder business news, insights and learnings in D2C, and interesting business resources. And if you're a founder building an e-commerce brand, you can join our private network of entrepreneurs called Hype Club at femalestartupclub.com forward slash Hype Club. We have guests from the show joining us for intimate Ask Me Anythings, expert workshops, and a group of totally amazing, like-minded women building the future of D2C brands. As always, please do subscribe, rate and review the show and post your favorite episodes to Instagram stories. I am beyond grateful when you do that. Hold up. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's June here. Thanks for listening to this amazing episode of the Female Startup Club podcast. If you're a fan of the show and want even more of the good stuff, I'd recommend checking out femalestartupclub.com where you can subscribe to our free newsletter. We send it out weekly covering female founder business news, insights and learnings in D2C, and interesting business resources. And if you're a founder building an e-commerce brand, you can join our private network of entrepreneurs called Hype Club at femalestartupclub.com forward slash Hype Club. We have guests from the show joining us for intimate Ask Me Anythings, expert workshops, and a group of totally amazing, like-minded women building the future of D2C brands. As always, please do subscribe, rate and review the show, and post your favorite episodes to Instagram stories. I am beyond grateful when you do that. 